person in the morning. Starbucks couldn't get raspberry syrup and, and it was close to a monumental <laughs> breakdown in our, our functioning of our household. <laughs> but one thing I'm relatively sure of is that when it comes to coffee or tea people, nobody really cares for lukewarm coffee or tea. Now maybe you like iced coffee, and that's popular these days, and that's fine. I don't know why anyone would want ice in a cup yeah. of coffee. But you know what? Yeah, see? I don't know why you want to do that to yourself, but you know what? I'm, I'm old enough now that I, I can go without judging you for your drink choices. We're not racist. I will judge you for racist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you know, lukewarm coffee or tea just is kind of gross. It makes you want to spit it out. I mean, I feel the same way about water or soda. Right? It's got to be cold. Okay, you grab you grab a can of soda and you think it's going to be cold, and it's not cold, it's gross. So we're coming to the end of our little journey around Asia Minor, uh, through the last of the seven churches. Remember we started in Ephesus, where we learned that Jesus wants his church to stand firm on the truth and love. We did a lesson for that. I imagine many of you, like me, were very happy with the court decision this week. Um, but I've also noticed in the midst of that, in the midst of many Christians who are very happy with that so with that, that decision, and, and I too, so don't think I'm saying I'm not, okay, that there is a lot of, at least on the internet, because I don't get out much, so it's whatever I know what's going on. <laughs> so they don't let me out too much. Causes problems with society. Um, there's a lot of obnoxious celebrating. That is not the truth and love of it. Um, so I think it's very, very important that, that we remember that truth and love. Um, that's a good lesson, especially in, in a situation like this. Um, so we can be happy that we can start to move toward more, toward less, less abortion. But I don't think that gives us any reason. We should not glow. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. There's no call for glory. Okay. Um, Smyrna. We learned that when you stand for the truth of love, sometimes you might get persecuted for that. And we're to bear up under persecution. And we travel around Pergamum. And we learned how Jesus wants his church, the people of his church, to pursue holiness. That we're to live out that truth. Not just enough to talk about the truth and love. We are to live out the truth of love, which is why if you read my Friday email, you'll notice that I said even as we could celebrate the Roe decision, that I 
fully believe we need, if we're going to be for life, we need to be for life cradle to grave. Okay, which means caring for children and for mothers, and caring for the aged and everything in between, disabled or whatever it is. Okay, so that's that to me is a is a is a living out the truth and love sort of situation. Um, Thyatira, false teachers out there, cause major problems. They lead people into sin. So we're to examine every teaching and every teacher. You saw how when those things don't happen, you end up with a church like Sardis, which is a zombie church, right? They they sort of looked like they were alive, but inside they were dead. They lacked true faith. They lacked the power of God's Spirit working in them. But we also then got to see the church in Philadelphia, which was the opposite of Sardis, right? Here's a church where they're, even though they were small, they were doing everything right. And they were full of blessings from God because they were the faithful church. Now hopefully, not too many churches end up like Sardis. And of course, we want all churches, including our own, to be like Philadelphia. But there is another kind of church, the last church that we're about to talk about. And this one, I think, is the hardest to repair when the damage sets in because this sort of church thinks it's doing well yet it is in desperate need. And that is the kind of church that is in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, cold, nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shape of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, the city of Laodicea, as we come around, as we kind of come around in our circle that's down here, on the road there, between the interior and the exterior of Asia Minor, you notice how you're here, you've got all these cities over here, and then you've got Ephesus over here, where the road is joined from Antioch and through Colossae and Hierapolis and over to, over to Ephesus. Um, and so, kind of at the crossroads there, it got to be a very wealthy city. It had a banking center. They were famous for their black wool. And they were famous for a particular medicine that they made there that was an eye salve that people would put in their eyes when they had eye trouble. So Laodicea was wealthy. But what we're told here, its church reflected some of that, had some wealthy people in it. And this city, of course, and its church most likely, was very multicultural, very cosmopolitan, you would imagine. Um, place that was very open to not only the Roman influence, but non-Roman influences, as you had people coming from the east through this town, 
as they headed into the Roman regions and the deeper parts of the empire. So a lot of influences in Laodicea from other cultures and people there that came from other places. It is a very similar state to what we find ourselves in the United States in the Western world, right? The United States overall is, is relative to the rest of the world, a very wealthy country. Even our poor are more wealthy than the poor in other countries. I'm not saying it's great to be poor. I'm just saying that on average, even our poor are doing better than there are places in the, in the world where they're just really poor people. We also live in a place that's very multicultural, right? I mean, everything is acceptable in the United States at this point. We're told not to judge anyone else's lifestyle or choices or beliefs or culture or whatever. I accept everything. Go to gold. When you're surrounded by that, by wealth, it's easy to want to walk in, in both worlds, right? It's easy to, to, to want to be a Christian, but also take advantage of all that stuff in the world around us. And that's kind of the situation Laodicea was in. And so Jesus comes then with this, his final message to the churches here. And he comes now as Christ, the ruler over all creation. Let's look at verse 14 again. It says, that the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, when we use the word Amen, that's from a Hebrew word. It just it means, so be it. Let it be. But not like it be. So Christ comes, and we can look here, we, we, he, can, he 
can assess the true spiritual condition of his church and of his people because he is the creator and he is the true witness and he bears witness to his word and to his faithfulness and he's the sustainer of all things and he's about to give his opinion of Laodicea and I'm going to tell you it's not so good because really what good is a lukewarm church? I know your works. You are neither hot, cold, nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now I used to think when I read this passage, and you probably read this passage, and I bet if you've been around church for a long time, you've heard it preached this way before. That when you see this, okay, this is kind of how I heard, heard, heard it was preached. Cold is dead and hot is on fire for Jesus. Okay, so if you are cold, at least we could light a fire under your butt and get you going for Jesus. And if you're hot, that's great. But if you're lukewarm, you're just kind of, kind of, you know, right? But that is not what this passage is saying. Not what it's saying. That triple is imaginary. It's not what it's saying, okay? That is pushing our cultural associations of hot and cold on the text. See, what Jesus means is helpful to think about what the water in Laodicea was like. Laodicea's water supply was piped miles and miles from the mountains through Africa. Now, the Romans, the Romans were really smart, and they were great engineers. They clearly have worked for John Deere, but they're still around. They wanted water to be in their city, so they would they would build these aqueducts. They were sort of like open pipes, right? They would, they would carve out these open pipes, and they would build them for miles. And the water would then flow. They would divert water from a mountain stream or whatever, flow into the city. But see, there's a problem with that because the, the water starts out up in the mountains. It's, it's nice and cold, right? But you know, you run it through an open air aqueduct for a few miles, and what do you get? I want 
right now, it's not okay. Yeah, four inches. That's okay for the pool, right? But if I want water to drink, I want it to be cold. I don't want lukewarm water unless I'm just dying thirst. The idea of lukewarm is something that's not fit for its purpose. It's something that it's not good. Jesus said, if you were cold or you were hot, that'd be great because you'd be fit for a purpose. But when you're lukewarm, you're just yuck. That's why he's going to spit you out of his mouth. Because they weren't, they weren't fit for what he had called them to. They weren't functioning as a church should. Now, the other thing you might have heard in this, maybe from somebody well-meaning, was that the spitting you out of your mouth, out of his mouth, meant that they were gonna they were gonna either lose their salvation or not be saved or something of that to that effect. Okay, that is not what's going on here. Spitting something out of your mouth is a sign of disgust. Jesus is disgusted with them. It's like that king, you know, you think the soda's cold, you take a quick drink, it's not, you spit it out, right? Jesus is disgusted with the Laodiceans. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know salvation is not in view here because of what he says in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. When he says whom I love, especially in any of John's writings, he's always talking about believers. And when he says discipline, he's always talking about believers. There's nowhere in the New Testament where Jesus ever disciplines non-believers. Now, they might be called to repent and turn to him in salvation. They might receive judgment, but they're never disciplined. The word for discipline is not used in reference to unbelievers. It's only used in reference to believers. Hebrews chapter 12 makes it very clear. Look at verses 5 through 8. Have you forgotten the exhortation <coughs> excuse me, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves. And chastises every who? Every son or daughter that he receives. It is for discipline that you are to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father is not disciplined? If you're left without discipline, in which we all have participated, what does he say? You are illegitimate children and not sons. Fools does God discipline? Only believers. Only those he would call sons and daughters. Only his children. The lukewarm here are believers that could face discipline if they don't get some things figured out. That's why Jesus is upset. The idea is he's disgusted with them. He wants them to give a program. And he might have to discipline them that point. So the question we should be asking ourselves, I think, if I read that, and I think, well, I certainly don't want Jesus to be upset with me. I certainly don't like the idea of being disciplined. How do we know if we're lukewarm? I mean, you can almost, when you, when, you, when you read that, 
can almost kind of kind of hear it, right? We're fine. We're great. We got it going on here. Everything's good. Everything's fine. We don't need anything else. We're, we're awesome. What do you want? <laughs> more than one. church would act like that? Who, who would be like that? Wow. I'm going to tell you a story. Ah, <laughs> uh, many, many years ago, back in the 90s, as Abe would say, the last millennium, I sit to Perkins with somebody from the church that I pastored back then. We're having breakfast at Perkins. There used to be a Perkins up on University. And it used to be good back in the 90s. Then it got not good. And now it's closed So I'm, I'm sitting there having breakfast with my friend from my church, and this pastor from another church in town comes up, and he sort of knew somehow they knew each other, and he's talking to, to this guy, and, and this guy introduces me as, oh, this is Orville. He is one of the pastors at my church. And the guy kind of looks at me, nods his head, and then immediately turns back to my friend and says, you know, you really should come over to my church sometime and check out what's going on. Now you see, this is hard for some of you who've known me a long time, okay? This is going to be hard for some of you, like Delvin, who've known me for a long time. But back then, I was really kind of just, I, I, I was much more mellow, and not mellow, just much less outspoken than I am now. See, because Delvin right now is thinking, I'm surprised Orville didn't, like, you know, grab his head and just bam. <laughs> But I would have, looking back now, I would have had a retort for him now. But it would have been a gentle one. Yeah. It would have been. It would have been. Okay. It would have been. Um, back then, I, I just didn't say anything. I really didn't know what to say. Okay. Another time, same church. We invited in one of these guys from the Creation Research. How many of the Creation Research Institute? We invited one of these guys to come be a speaker. He was a speaker for the Creation Research Institute. Honestly, he was fabulous. It was, he was really good. Okay. And so I volunteered to be the guy, you know, they call me, they always bring a book table, right? Okay, because they're going to sell their books, because that's part of how they make their money, which, that's cool. Labor is worthy of his wages. I got a problem with that. I said, they need somebody to run the book table. I said, I'll run the book table. That was great. I'll stand there and sell your books. I like books. I talk about books all day. I love books. He even said, you're on my book table, I'll give you a book. Well, I was in at that point. <laughs> I'm going to get a free book out of this deal? I do a lot of things for a free book. Okay. Only non sinful, legitimate, legal things. Anyway. So I'm there selling books, and this lady comes in. She says, oh, I'd like to buy this book. She goes, I don't even know where this came from. She goes, yes, 
we really enjoyed this speaker. She said, the church I go to is, is much too big and too busy to have someone like this in our church. <laughs> I, I, once again, I didn't know what to say. See, Delvin right now is going, wait a minute, there are two times in his life in his speeches? I just didn't know what to say. Because who says that? Who says stuff like that? Laodiceans do. Laodiceans do. Wow, we're too, you know, we're too good for that. Yet, yet there she was at, at my church coming to hear the speaker. <laughs> okay, whatever. See, that sort of thing, that kind of arrogance is, is not what Jesus is looking for. It betrays something about a person's heart. That it's not in the right place. It, it's the I need nothing, I'm better than you attitude. And whole churches can have that. But yet Psalm 51.17 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Not a problem. Because the Old Testament and the New Testament both repeatedly warn that pride and arrogance are opposed by God and will lead you to all sorts of trouble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want the God of the universe to be opposed to you? I don't know about you, but I did not wake up in the morning thinking, man, if I could only get Jesus to be opposed to me today, that'll make for a great day. No, that'll be bad. Furthermore, we, we, we know from what Jesus says here that Laodicea was worldly instead of seeing their neediness. They were wealthy, they were prosperous, they were sure everything was going to be okay. They thought their wealth showed that they were blessed. Now, it was a common teaching in Pharisaical Judaism that wealth meant you were blessed. And if you were wealthy, God must be blessing you. Have you ever heard that teaching anywhere else? Have you ever been flipping through channels and seen one of those guys? And they're going to tell you that God wants you to be rich. God has promised that you'll be rich, but you've got to plant the seed of faith. And for you to plant the seed of faith, you need to send me a thousand dollars. Now, we're laughing because you know it's true. I always think it's funny. Why does God always want me to send them a thousand dollars? Do they also have the new car fund? <laughs>
to have a change of mind and turn from that pride and that worldliness and that self-sufficiency and whatever other sins there are to following Christ wholeheartedly. And so he tells them three things, right? He says, first, number one, they need to, to work for the Lord and not themselves. That's what the gold here has the idea of, right? It's in contrast to worldly wealth. Buy for me gold, refined in the fire. And where does that idea come from? Well, that idea is explained really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because it talks about how the only works that matter are those that are going to be done out of love for Christ and neighbor and the Spirit's power. Look what it says. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building on it. Let each one take care of how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the stuff you're doing for the Lord. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. What day? The day Jesus comes to judge it. We'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has done, that's us, anyone that's built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. If the work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Okay, so there's stuff that's done. If it's done for Christ, and it's the gold, silver, precious stones kind of stuff, when the fire of judgment comes, it lasts. But you know what? If it's wood, hay, and straw, it's burned up. It's that metaphor occurs all over the New Testament. The idea of, of things built from precious metals and stones that they'll endure and go into eternity. Or some things won't. Works that endure. That's what Jesus is talking about. Do things that endure. Do the things that Jesus wants us to do. Done out of love of Christ and the love of others. Second thing. Talks about white garments, right? Which, of course, is meant to contrast with that black wool that Laodicea was famous for in ancient times. Right? The white garments. The holiness and purity that comes from Jesus. I talked about that back in one of the previous churches when we talked about holiness. Right? Remember in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, there's the uncountable multitude in heaven, and they're given white robes, the righteousness of Christ. That's where it comes from. It's the idea of putting aside the sin and the worldliness, embracing the holiness that we learn from the church of Pergamon. And then he talks about the eye set. Right, because again, that was something Laodicea was famous for. It's the idea that they need to see themselves rightly. You need to see yourself rightly. If this all happens, you have got to see what your spiritual condition is. Because blindness in the scriptures, when it's not talking about someone actually being blind, is a metaphor for not being able to see your true spiritual state. In John chapter 9, verse 40, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're blind. Okay? Doesn't mean that they were all off and on Stevie Wonder. They were blind because they couldn't, they couldn't see their true spiritual condition that they weren't, they, they thought they were so amazing and so spiritual, and they weren't. Okay, 2 Peter 1.9, Peter talks about how people who claim faith, but it does not manifest in the changed lifestyle, that they're blind. They don't see the truth of their true spiritual condition. But if we see ourselves rightly, we will see our need to live for Jesus and not for ourselves. We'll see our need to do the works that he's prepared for us to do that have eternal value, the gold stuff, Ephesians 2.10. And you know when you, when you do that, 
begin to experience a deeper fellowship with Jesus. Because that's what he's drawing us to here. Some, a fellowship that fulfills the needs of our soul, that stuff can't, that worldly stuff can't, that human relationships even can't. And that's what he talks about here in verses 20 through 22, the blessings of what I call refreshing fellowship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he'll come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> so he gives potential for two blessings there. First, there's a present blessing. It says he stands at the door and knocks. And anybody who, who invites a man, he'll, he'll share a meal with him, right? I will eat with him, he'll eat with me. The idea there of having a meal, especially the evening meal, that's what this word refers to, is the evening meal, was a sign of acceptance and fellowship. Meals were a big deal in the ancient world. There's actually a lot of parts of the world where meals are still a big deal. They're not so much in our, in our culture anymore. But there was a time, even in our culture, where they were. And Jesus, Jesus says, I'll, I'll let me in. Follow me the way you should follow me. We'll have true fellowship. We'll be together. It'll be refreshing because it's refreshment for the soul. It's, it's a blessing in this life. And we receive that when we, we are ready to have Jesus on his terms. Fellowship with the Savior is like hot chocolate on a cold day after you've been shoveling snow. more in our lives than just some kind of fire insurance. He wants to be part of every area of our lives. He wants to have intimate fellowship with us. That's the idea of the meal, the intimate fellowship. Like a lifelong friend you can always discuss anything with and always get perfect advice and help from. That's the present blessing, is, is that kind of fellowship. But there's also a future blessing. Now one of the interesting fundamental truths of the Bible is that the things we do in this life have something to do with eternity. That's kind of weird to think about. But the things that, that we do in this life have bearing on our eternity. We saw that already in 1 Corinthians 3 that I read earlier. But verse 21 takes that even farther. He says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow, I, I kind of like the sound of that. I like thrones. When I was in Pennsylvania back in the day, on the stage, there were three thrones. There was there was a big throne in the center behind the pulpit and two smaller ones on either side. And Pastor Blake sat in the middle throne. And I sat, since I was the number two guy, I sat at his right hand on the smaller throne on the right side. And the worship leader, Gino Bartoletti, who was just as Italian as he sounds, great guy, 
sat in the left-hand throne. And we sat up on the stage on the thrones through the whole service until it was time to preach. And then Gino and I sat down. My life's wrong. Thrones in a spinny globe. Well, look at these. Okay, you think that sounds good? Look, 1 Corinthians 6.3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? What? I'm not even going to speculate on that. Okay? I'm just telling you it's there. I didn't write it. I'm just saying it's there. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. The saying is trustworthy. For if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Judging angels. Reigning with Jesus. Sounds pretty awesome. These are functions of responsibility in eternity. But they are apparently dependent upon how we serve Jesus in this life. Now, do I know all of how this is actually going to play out? Of course not, because the Bible doesn't really explain it very well. I always love it. You know, when Paul throws out something like, do you know we're also going to judge angels? And then he just goes off in some other direction about something else. It's like the writer of Hebrews says, there are many other things that I would like to discuss with you, but since you need milk and not meat, and then he goes off on that, like, what things? I want to know. Right. So I don't know how it's all going to play out. I can't tell you that because the Bible doesn't elaborate. But I know I want to be able to serve Jesus and have usefulness and purpose for eternity. And if he's talking thrones and reigning and judging angels, I want a part of that. Jesus' blessings, they don't, they don't come from what he's telling us here, the half-hearted or the lukewarm, or the one who thinks, oh, I got my fire insurance and I don't need anything else. Self-sufficient, prideful. Not looking for people who think they can just rely on themselves and their own prosperity and their own wisdom. Jesus' blessing of deep spiritual intimacy and the blessing of future glory come to those who are willing to open their eyes see their true spiritual condition. We're willing to pursue holiness. We're willing to serve the Lord in this life. When we do that, we can experience that deep, refreshing fellowship and relationship with Him now. Look forward to serving Him in the future and know that He is the one who is always faithful and true. Let's pray. Father, it is